Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10 to get 10% off our central membership for the first year. And now to today's episode. What do Elon Musk, Mickey Mouse, and MGM Resorts have in common? Three ideas. Welcome back to another edition of Three Ideas. I'm Samuel Burke, Managing Editor at Real Vision, joined today by Ross Gerber, who's the President and Chief Executive of Gerber Kawasaki. Now, I know a lot of people see you everywhere, Ross. They've heard about you and Elon Musk, but we're going to move beyond those headlines and really get into some deeper ideas that you have, including around Tesla, Mickey Mouse, and MGM Resorts, but first, just give us your macro thesis as a way to just give us a backdrop for the ideas that we're going to talk about today. Well, I think the the main concept is where are we in the business cycle? So we've last year dealt with a massive revaluation of all assets as the Federal Reserve raised rates from zero to four and a half percent, which was one of the quickest rate increases in American history, and it created a lot of dislocation. But it was predicated on. Um, under tightening for not long enough and creating an inflationary environment, which ultimately was hurting consumers. And what we're seeing as we move forward with the economy slowing and prices coming back down and inflation essentially being dead is the consumers are, are back in full force, which really helps, you know, the assets that we invest in because we're very consumer focused as an investment firm. And so, so as we move into the next cycle, whether we have a recession or not, um, is still up for debate, but the economy is slowing and it does uh, create opportunities for investors because uh, consumers have a lot more money and we haven't seen any effect on the demand for labor. And so although we're seeing more and more layoffs in every day from different companies, it's actually rebalancing the labor market in a way that I think is mostly beneficial for fighting inflation, which then gives people more money to spend at places like Disneyland or on a Tesla or gambling. You're bullish and you're bullish on the three ideas that we're going to talk about today. Let's jump into the first one, the elephant in the room, Tesla. I want to just zoom out for a second. First, we had Tesla peaking in November of 2021, around $407 a share, bottoming out uh, in January of 2022, around $113. And now it's sitting right around just under $200. Everybody knows that you're pushing for the board seat. We see you and Elon go back and forth uh, on Twitter. But really, at the end of the day, you have a, a bullish outlook on this that really has to do with energy storage more than anything. So can we start there? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people get caught up in the story around Tesla being an EV company and the massive increase in sales of EVs, but they oftentimes miss some of the other innovations that are happening that are massively important um, in the deployment of uh, clean energy. So as much as Tesla is a transportation company, clean transportation, it is also a clean energy company. And I think a lot of people don't put enough weight into the moves that Tesla has made recently to vastly increase the production of megapack storage. Um, and megapack storage uh, right now, a perfect example is what's happening in Austin. And so here we are in Texas and storms come and hit and all the power's gone and all the power lines go down. And, and so the question is, is could there be energy storage deployment 
Can individual consumers have their own power walls and other alternative energy sources? So from the consumer side to the utility side, um, storage of energy is going to be a vast increase in the efficiency of energy use. So Tesla's really uh, developed this technology called the 4680 cell, which vastly increases the ability to store energy. And the deployment of this in trucks and megapacks um, creates the opportunity for Tesla to be a major player in the electric coal utility business. So you see that outside of just powering their own vehicles, you see Tesla as a player? Absolutely. I, I mean, the, when you think about a solar you know, project in Arizona, let's say, we were discussing how hot it is in Arizona in summer and how much space there is, let's say, outside of Phoenix where you could put a massive solar farm. But when the sun goes down, there's no power being generated. So if I'm able to store that energy during the day that's not being used and then use it at night, it doubles the efficiency of that storage facility. So it's a a huge opportunity. If we're really going to make the transition to clean energy, we have to have the ability to store renewable energy. And do you see that becoming as as Tesla faces more and more competition from all the players that we know? Do you see that possibly becoming the the pillar of the business? No, I, I think ultimately because there are so many cars on the road and there are about seventy five million cars sold every year, Tesla's market share is less than two percent of the global supply of cars, and it's really constrained by production. That we feel Tesla could take anywhere up to maybe ten to twenty percent of the car market in the short term. And so, you know, vehicles are a profitable and and important way to deal with climate change. And and really, I think the primary way, but I think a lot of people get caught up that Tesla's this car company, and that's the mistake in their analysis of Tesla. And I just had that debate with Jim Chanos, and and he's insisting now it's a Chinese car company. And, And I think that's just a fundamental misunderstanding of the business. Well, speaking of China, I want to jump right in on that because a lot of people might think of you as the perma bull of Tesla, although you've taken Elon and Tesla Tesla to task. But as we think about this idea right now and where China is, I want to know how that factors into your thinking. Yeah, I mean, I've been a bullish on Tesla for a long time, but what I think a lot of people don't understand is China is one of the most aggressive markets for EV adoption in the world. And the competitors only exist in China. So when you really look at American and European competitors to Tesla, they don't really exist. But when you look at Chinese competitors, there are many cars coming out of China that are EVs that are quite good with good technology. And But yet the market's twice as big as the United States and Europe. And so China has this huge market. And now 25% of the Chinese market is now EVs. So it's three or four times bigger than the EV adoption rate of the United States today. So China is a crucially important uh, market for, you know, a lot of American products that I'm invested in, whether it be Apple, iPhones, or or uh, the casinos in Macau. But when you look at a company like Tesla, the most efficient factory they've ever built is in Shanghai, and the demand from Chinese consumers will continue to grow for what we think decades to come. And then specifically with China reopening, it, not just the consumer demand inside of China, how do you see the China reopening affecting Tesla Uh, supply chains at this point? Well, this was the best news. You know, I was pretty bearish going into the end of last year with the Fed continuing to raise rates, I thought, well, further than needed. And then China COVID lockdowns, I thought was probably one of the worst policies you could ever implement 
as a nation. So it was, you know, extremely detrimental to the Chinese economy. And we've seen it in all the numbers in Q4. And so the fact that she pivoted so quickly and so extremely to open everything up on the short term, causing enormous pain for Chinese people as they got COVID. And the Unfortunately, probably hundreds of thousands of people that will die in China over the next short-term period of time from COVID. The, the long-term, it allows their economy to catch up with the world and start growing again, and it allows their consumers to get out and start spending money. And we've seen that now in the actual data from January and February, well, not mostly January, that you know people are traveling more, people are out again, people are spending money, and this is just the beginning. So it's very bullish for companies like Tesla because, you know, you're not going to go out and buy a car if you're locked down, you know. But now that you're not locked down and you're thinking, maybe I don't want to take public transportation as much because of COVID and this and that, so you buy your own vehicle. And Chinese people really value cars as a symbol of independence and freedom. So it's really a great opportunity now for Tesla as China reopens and, and their sales should reemerge quite strong, I think. And it seems apparent that the costs of making Tesla should come down as inflation begins to, to recede. Yes, for sure. So the supply chain costs from lithium to transportation to labor to um, supplies and parts to chips was out of control a, a year ago. I mean, it was really, I think it was Q2 last year was the hardest quarter because you have the lockdowns in Shanghai and costs and soaring. So Tesla performed pretty well last year, despite all these factors, and they were able to raise prices on cars. But now we're seeing this cost structure recede very rapidly. And Tesla has been able to lower the price of the cars substantially and generate an enormous level of demand. But ideally, over the rest of the year, the cost structure will also come down so that their margins won't be completely destroyed. So, so this is a very unique time for a company like Tesla as it transitions back to a more normal operating environment. And, and what's your time frame as you look at investment horizons with Tesla? Well, typically when I make an investment in a company, I don't set a time frame because what we really look for is companies to execute. So as long as companies are executing in their business plan and management's doing what we feel is best for the company, we plan on holding stocks forever. Um, if if things change, we will we will change, you know, but those have to be actual changes in the way the business is run or management, uh, something fairly extreme. But Tesla is a great long-term investment and most of the investments we make are long-term. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. Well, and that's the bit of the conundrum is that clearly you don't think that they're doing it to the best of their ability or you wouldn't have engaged in this in this very public battle and fighting for a board seat. But I think that's kind of the surface story. 
you know, in talking with you, it sounds like your relationship with, with Elon's probably a lot better than some people might perceive on Twitter. So help us uh, delineate between kind of the cable news fodder and and what you're actually pushing for here, what you actually see here, because you, you're, you're bullish. Yeah, I mean, I consider myself a friendly activist. My goal is not to, you know, harm Tesla or I have any big issue with Tesla's management team. I think they've done an excellent job. My goal is really what is best for Tesla and what is also best for Elon in the management of this business. And obviously, I mean, Elon's even admitted it on Twitter. You know, this this whole Twitter purchase has been a huge distraction and a very costly venture for Tesla shareholders and everybody involved. And and then on top of it, getting into politics has been extremely damaging to, I think, a lot of people's perception of Elon. And, you know, I find that sad. So, you know, I'm trying to help Elon and Tesla message better, communicate to the public better, have people rebuild their confidence in the management team and Elon and what they're trying to accomplish at Tesla. Because I think Twitter has become a big distraction from the overall goal of, you know, advancing sustainable transportation and energy. And I know that's ultimately Elon's goal. So, you know, I think sometimes I, I like to say, you know, you have two types of friends, the ones who always say you're great. And then the ones who say, you know, I love you, but there are certain things you're doing that are hurtful to everybody. And like, maybe you should consider these things. And that's really the role I feel I play. You know, I, I know that Elon knows that I want best for him. And there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that people don't see. And they listen. And Elon listens. And you can see it right now with the stock recovering. His, his Twitter behavior has changed over the last 30 days. He's become much less political. Um, and I think that um, refocusing on the product of Twitter and the products and services of Tesla and SpaceX um, has really helped starting to help rebuild you know, confidence in Tesla and, and Elon. But unfortunately, there's a lot of people who are not fans of Elon anymore that really should be. And that's the perception that I'm trying to help uh, change or alter so that people understand, hey, you know, Elon's not, you know, a Trump supporter or a right winger. You know, it's like the extremes that everything's reported on really exacerbates people's emotions. So the most interesting part of this show and perhaps the most interesting time I've ever been able to ask this question is with you right now, Ross, which is what would make you upend your your view on Tesla? And clearly, if Elon does more political tweeting, moves perceivably, you know, farther in, in a certain political direction, uh, doubles down, I assume that would in some part upend your view on Tesla. But I don't want to just focus on the Elon Twitter stuff. I want to get back into the other stuff. But I assume that if the behavior doesn't change on Twitter, it could upend your view. Um, Elon's a very smart man. And he, you know, once again, that's why I brought it to his attention as much, you know, of the good and the bad that you get from the people who are happy I've done it and the people who don't get it. But like, we've had this happen before, you know, it's not like the first rodeo with Twitter and he's in a case right now over funding secured. And I mean, you know, Twitter can cause a lot of pain for people in their brand. Um, but I think it's, you know, 
I, I think he's a very smart man, and I think he's making the adjustments necessary, and I think we're seeing the recovery in the stock because of that. What would really upend my view is if something ever happened to Elon. Elon is still crucially important to the long-term success of Tesla, and that's really why I want him to refocus 100% on Tesla and sort of find a CEO for Twitter because we're about to launch some of the biggest and most consequential products you know, for Tesla, which is the Cybertruck and the Semi-Truck, um, as well as continued expansion of battery production and manufacturing facilities and gigafactories. So, so it's a crucially important time. So if anything ever happened to Elon, I think that we would have to reassess the stock because they haven't put in place a strong succession plan. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I am running for the board is I think there should be a very clear organizational chart. And I think it should be very clear if anything ever happened to Elon, you know, what would happen with Tesla. And I think that would benefit shareholders greatly to have that clarity. You've been through the Apple Steve Jobs experience. Right. And what else would make you upend your view on, on Tesla? I mean, not much. I, you know, I, I've been investing for 30 years as a professional, and I've rarely seen a company at this stage of growth and development with such a dominant position in their markets. And it's very similar to Apple maybe, you know, 15 years ago, when they were really in the innovation cycle under Steve Jobs, um, it was really an exciting period of time for consumer products and technology under Apple and Steve. And Tim Cook was able to ride that for the last decade, you know, successfully. Now Apple has no innovation really. Um, so when you look at a company like Tesla and where they are in the development, it's really just the beginning in a lot of ways. And what about competition to Tesla, what numbers would you have to see from competitors to, to make you upend your view on Tesla? Well, I drive cars, you know, so I drive all the competitors' cars. I love cars. And I just got in my Model S Plaid this morning and put it on full self-driving, and it drove me down PCH to work here so I wouldn't be late. And I was sitting here thinking, this is the most dominant car ever built. You know, it's like, I'm sorry, Mercedes, you can charge me 175000 for you know, this EQE thing. And I've got to get in an EQE because I don't want to insult it too much. And then sure enough, because I've been making fun of Waymo cars today of all days, I saw two Waymo cars on the way to work. So I'm sitting here going, are these cars driving themselves or not? Because it's real hard, my drive to work. And sure enough, they had two people driving the cars in, in and I'm like, they're, the Waymos aren't even driving themselves. The people are driving the Waymos around and trying to teach the car to learn by just driving the car around. Um, but when you look at the hardware and the software of competitors like Waymo, and you look at the, the actual vehicles that are being built today, Tesla has you know a five to 10 year advantage over its competitors. Let's drive right on into Disney, take a step back, look at how it peaked around March of 2021 at $197, going all the way down to about $86 this past December. Now we're up around $112. Walk me through your view here. This is a company going through an incredibly turbulent time, especially because uh, of the changes up top for better and for worse. So what makes you so bullish on Disney? Bob Iger, you know, I, I have tremendous respect for his leadership, for his vision and his ability to work with creative talent to produce content that will be wildly successful, I hope, for Disney. Disney is a content business, first and foremost. It's, 
it drives all the other elements of their business. And, you know, Disney's had an extremely difficult uh, run because of COVID. COVID pretty much attacked all the tenets of what makes Disney great, which is in-person family experiences, whether it be in a theme park or a movie theater or whether it's on a vacation or a cruise ship. Disney monetizes its assets in various ways through in-real-life experiences. And our basic premise here, or my basic premise, is that COVID has changed the dynamic of what we want out of our lives, and we want to have a lot more fun now that we're in the post-pandemic period here. And Disney is a purveyor of fun. And travel and entertainment has been booming. And that's exactly where Disney's focus. But it still has to be predicated around great content. And when Bob Chapek took over, he was very much an operations guy. And he failed in being able to create great content and deal with uh, talent correctly and have any vision of where the business was going to go. And in this process, he really alienated a lot of the customers that like going to the parks and such like that. And it got so bad that they basically bet Bob Iger to come back. So yeah, he- I mean, I'm just thinking back to what you said about your idea around Tesla and you want to see, you know, a, an org chart that tells you what's going to happen if the top guys in along. Here's the person that Bob Iger handpicked by many accounts. Right. And, and, and I don't think he handpicked him. I think the board picked Bob Chapek and, and Iger was a part of that, not to say he wasn't a part of that, but, but I think they made a mistake and they rectified the mistake. And I think that's good business. And, you know, Iger was sitting around and, and he's not that old and he's in great shape and he's looking at Joe Biden running around the world and he's twice, almost twice his age or whatever. And he's like, why am I sitting at home? I should come back and fix this company that I love. And, you know, you got Nelson Peltz trying to get on the board and doesn't know anything about making a movie. And, you know, all he's worried about is compensation in the entertainment industry. Well, boy, I can tell you one thing. You're not going to change that, you know? So, you know, when you look at sports and entertainment, you know, the executives there are highly overpaid and that's always has been, probably always will be. Okay. Cause they'll go to the next place that will overpay them called Netflix. So, you know, I think Iger back will bring talent back and great content back to Disney. And we've already seen some wonderful success, which had really nothing to do with Iger, but with avatar. And it shows you how a, a movie like avatar can drive so much business now that the theaters are open again, but also into theme parks and into vacations and into Disney Plus, which is now this boogeyman that's never made them any money that now can become profitable in the next 12 months and be a revenue and profit driver for Disney. And you add the online business of Disney with the in real life part of Disney and you have a very, very attractive business by my And here's where the reopening in China plays another major factor. That's right. Because Chinese are humongous tourists. You know, I'm here in California and California, you know, very much relies on tourism. And the Chinese tourists have been a huge source of revenue for many years up until COVID. And when you think about also two parks, one in Hong Kong and one in Shanghai, also being dramatically affected, which are now open, you know, with no restrictions, it's like, kind of a dream come true if you're running a tourist business. So we expect a huge red wave of tourism, you know, coming to California, to Disneyland, or going to Shanghai parks locally, um, or going to the theaters and seeing movies, which Disney just got two big movies approved to be released in China. And 
that's the first time this has happened in years. So, you know, Avatar's made $250 million or, or plus in China. And so you start thinking about releasing Black Panther and other movies in China. And, and it's a huge revenue driver for Disney. So we're very excited about the return of China to the global markets. And, and just to be clear, you do think that this is an interesting opportunity to get in at around $110 for people who haven't been in it as long as you? Yeah, and I think, you know, you have to think as a long-term investor. Um, I've owned Disney my whole life. So, you know, if you think long-term with a company like Disney and it's not going to just be a one-year recovery for Disney, it's going to take them several years to really fully monetize their value and their, and turning in that into profits. But we expect really rapid profit growth for Disney over the next three to five years. And you kind of just, not skirted over, but... I mean, maybe you meant what you said in a way. I mean, you don't see, you kind of just brushed off, let's say, the the whole Pelt situation. Do you see that as an anomaly? Well, I think Pelt's is an activist investor who, you know, likes to get a lot of attention. But I don't think he fundamentally understands the business of Disney. And that's exactly what they replied to him. And, you know, if you're going to be on the Disney board, you really need to think about what does he bring to the table that would help Disney better. And just saying, I want to be on the compensation committee and start cutting everybody's pay. You know, you don't need to be on the board to do that. You can just put pressure. So I think Disney really needs to focus on their business and their business is about making content and they want to have partners, especially branding partners and people who really understand the business of Disney, not an activist shareholder. So, you know, when I look to be on the board of Tesla, I would argue that there are very few people who know Tesla better than me. So if you're going to put somebody on the board, at least I know this business and industry better than the vast majority of people. And certainly, I think better than several of the people on the board currently. So I'm an expert in that industry. And that's not something Nelson Peltz is. I have more experience in the entertainment industry than the Nelson Peltz. Well, I don't think either of you lack confidence of that, that's I am true. sure. But I want to get the the interesting part. So what would make you upend your view on Disney? I see it's not pelts. No, it's it's mostly like if there's more COVID issues, if another strain comes out and, you know, all these sort of black swan um, issues or terrorism, you know, Disney often is a target for terrorism, you know, in the sense of we are at war with Russia one way or another. And so, you know, there's some risks that I consider minor, but... In general, Disney is a durable brand that's made it through generations and and I think will be here long past my time too. So your time frame for Disney? For the rest of my life. I mean, I've owned it my whole life and, you know, I I like to hold stocks till I die and let my kids inherit them with the cost basis step up or whatever, you know. And any type of targets that you have, short or medium term? Um, well, I think it just depends on their earnings. So, you know, I'm hoping they can get back to about $6 in earnings in the next year or two. And then, you know, they've typically traded around a 20 multiple, 25 multiple. So, you know, Disney's getting closer to fair value, uh, now. Um, but I think longer term, their earnings potential is substantially higher. And let's jump into your third and final idea, MGM Resorts. Not for the reason that people would think, though. We'll just take a step back. Uh, was It peaked in November of 2021 at about $50, now hovering around uh, just north of $40. Bucks. Uh, 
not for the reason that people would think, not another uh, Celine Dion show that's driving you to be bullish here? Yeah, it's nothing like Bruno Mars and Celine to really get you out to Vegas, but it does get people out to Vegas. Now, it's all about sports. You know, Vegas is a a town that's reinvented itself over and over and again every generation. And and with this new wave, it's about sports and sports betting. And for the first time, the leagues of, you know, they used to like ban people like Pete Rose for betting on sports. And now the leagues basically own the sports books. I think they're putting a sports book in the, uh, in the stadium in Arizona um, where the Super Bowl is. And I think it's MGM too. And um, so when you think about the, the world of gambling and entertainment and sports, they've now converged. And Vegas now has the Raiders as a football team. They have the Golden Knights as a hockey team, and they're looking to add baseball and, and eventually, hopefully, basketball teams. But also all the events that are coming to Vegas, like the Pro Bowl this weekend, like, for example, Formula One, which is coming to Vegas in the end of the year in fall. And it just looks like, a hugely successful opportunity followed by the Super Bowl in March of 2024. I mean, February and March of 2024. So it's large events. It's large concerts like EDC that are now driving people from all over the country to come to Vegas to go do stuff. But now they can bet on sports, not just in the sports books, but on the apps on their phone. And sports betting is now legal in, you know, I think it's a majority of the United States. And MGM has taken about a 20% market share in the online gambling business. So this business as well is very similar to Disney Plus, where you have very high upfront expensive to acquire your customers. But once you get to a certain level, you can cut back that spending and start to make money. And that's exactly where BetMGM is this year. So in 2023, we expect BetMGM to be profitable, along with conventions are back, the post-COVID era. I mean, granted, I just got COVID in Vegas doing my research. I I did it so thoroughly, and fortunately, I'm recovered now. Um, But, you know, Vegas is booming right now. People want to go out and have fun and be with their friends and family, and Vegas is I think one of the easiest places to have a good time and for companies and corporations that are looking to and and conventions that are looking to gather people. It's one of the easiest, uh, most efficient places to have an event. And we've seen that business come back 100 percent. So that was one of the the big things for Vegas is can we get the midweek business back? So that's back with events, with gambling, with online and with sports and entertainment. Um, You know, we're very bullish on that. Oh, And the casinos in Macau are finally open again. So this has been a huge drag, a huge drag on many of the casino companies as they've had basically shut casinos. And the Chinese government won't let them fire everybody because it's China. So they've had to just spend money for three years, basically, and just losing money. And so they got their concession renewed recently, and that allows them to operate in China for the next decade. And now... We saw Macau numbers go up substantially, highest numbers we've seen since COVID. They're still below what they used to be. But Macau used to be one of the biggest gambling enclaves in the world. And we expect that to return over the next probably 12 months. So there's a lot of this China upside again that will benefit MGM. And and specifically, just circling back on the sports betting with MGM, there's that partnership with Entain, which is actually based here in the U.K., for folks who don't know that, you're quite bullish around that. 
Right. Intain is their partner, and there's been a lot of talk about MGM and Intain merging or being bought. Um, Intain is a very interesting business because they have a lot. Of, they have the online businesses all throughout Europe, as well as the betting, you know, places in in London and such that you can go in and bet. Um, the culture around sports betting in Europe is obviously huge. It's certainly predicated around soccer, and so you know, a company like Intain is is an interesting investment because the value of BetMGM has become extremely high and they own 50% of it, but they also have all these other great businesses. So a combination of the two companies wouldn't surprise me. I think it would be mostly about what price would be best. So, you know, um, Intainer is a very interesting investment as well, but they don't have the type of business MGM has. And you actually have some specific targets, short, medium, long-term when it comes to MGM resorts. Yeah, I mean, MGM, I think, is worth about $50 today. It's trading around $41, $42. Um, so there's upside. But I think that's in today. I think the the numbers are really hard to predict moving forward. MGM has very low uh, earnings estimates for 23 and 24 right now because of China. And I don't think analysts have fully priced in what that upside is once China becomes profitable again for MGM and the other players there. So um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what MGM actually earns, you know, over the next two years, um, because I don't think the analysts have any real idea, but I think the numbers will actually be much better than expected. I think you've referenced somewhere about $80 you could see in the next two years. Does that yeah. sound? Yeah, $75, $80. I mean, I think it, it's, once again, it's predicated on on China and how quickly that market comes back because the gambling market in China used to be about 10 times as big as Las Vegas. So it just gives you an idea of, you know, what that market potential is if it comes back to even 75% of what it used to be. And so right now we're about 50% of where it needs to be, and it's only been one month. So let's see how China looks in spring, and this could get real interesting for companies like MGM. And what would make you upend your view on MGM resorts? Well, further China lockdowns or, or any, you know, issues with uh, China that would you know, change this predication where now it becomes a loss and it continues to be a loss on the books, then those earning estimates won't be wrong. You know what I'm saying? Um, so that, you know, would be disappointing. And then, of course, going back to terrorism slash, you know, MGM had that horrible terrorist incident where it was a domestic terrorist in this case. Um, and it was just a horrible, horrible situation. They actually sold the land uh, where, where that event happened because the karma is just, it's sad. You know, it's a really sad thing. So they've had a terrorist attack on their property that was massive and horrible. So, you know, those situations are extremely difficult and in a lot of ways hard to prevent. And, but they as well are most likely shorter term events, but, but it's certainly a concern because, you know, that's a reality in our society today. We have a, a tremendous amount of gun violence. Incredibly negative situations for a man who's very positive and very bullish on these oh, three ideas. <laughs> of course, that's part of it. Ross Gerber, president and chief executive of Gerber Kawasaki. Thanks so much for joining us on Three Ideas. Thanks for having me. All right, let's jump right into the key takeaways from that discussion with Ross. 
First idea, you see he's very bullish about Tesla. Perhaps the most interesting part for me was talking about Tesla growing as an energy storage company, not just the energy stored in their vehicles, but creating a new vertical outside of vehicles. For that, he sees costs coming down for Tesla, which is very positive, obviously. And China finally reopening is another positive move for Tesla. Uh, What keeps him up at night is the same situation that he saw with Apple losing their leader. He doesn't see a clear succession plan. And so that uh, is one of the reasons that he wants that board seat. And he also is concerned about Twitter being a distraction for Elon Musk if he doesn't get it under control, although he sees that Elon Musk is moderating in recent weeks. So he's happy about that. Ross's second idea is around Disney. There, there was a clear succession plan, but he didn't like what Bob Chapek did as the head of Disney and is very happy to see Bob Iger back there. And he thinks he has a little bit of Biden envy. He thinks that he's a lot stronger and younger than Biden. So uh, while many have talked about maybe Bob Iger will just come and go, Ross has a very clear view that uh, Bob Iger is there to stay. Um, He's not worried about that activist investor Peltz trying to get a board seat. Uh, He thinks that that will not weigh down Disney. And he's very bullish about the reopenings for Disney in China. But he also thinks that that continues to happen for Disney in the U.S. for the theme parks and movie theaters. And he doesn't believe that all their streaming woes will weigh down on them in the long term. His big concerns are around terrorism. He's a long-term holder, so he looks at big picture. He's mentioned Russia or Iran, if there were some type of terror attack uh, from those countries in the West, that would make him upend his view. But of course, he's not a geopolitical strategist there. He's thinking uh, worst, uh, worst scenario, though maybe another COVID wave would also make him rethink his trade. And lastly, and perhaps the most interesting, because we don't hear Ross talk about this uh, that often when he's on the cable networks, talking about MGM resorts. He sees that Las Vegas is reopened, but very different in this iteration of Vegas, not necessarily about the concerts, but in addition to that, now you have sports betting. Uh, American sports teams have often not had any type of presence in Las Vegas. Now those sports teams are there. He sees MGM making smart investments in companies like Intain to do sports betting online. He likes the people uh, that they've partnered with to do that. And of course, the reopenings in China, big properties in Macau. Uh, and much like Disney, he probably will only have his mind changed uh, if there is some type of major negative events like a terror attack or another major COVID wave. And there he has some pretty clear price targets. He's not just a forever holder with the other stocks that the the way he is with uh, Tesla and Disney in the sense that short term, he thinks that the stock should be trading around $50 as opposed to being closer to 40 and medium to long term, he sees them around $80. I'll see you on the next edition of Three Ideas. In the meantime, leave us any comments that you have right here in the comments section. And we'll see you soon.
Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.